Aussie music is something to be proud of. Wear it like a badge. Because it's Australian bands and artists that are the influencers of so many other musicians the world over. So at Triple M, we're proud to be able to showcase the power of the Aussie music scene. Paying both homage to the greats that have stood the test of time, right alongside the current, the emerging, the future influencers. The ones that will be next to make their mark on the global music scene. If it's Aussie and it rocks, it's right here. This is Triple M's Homegrown with Matty O. Yes, right around the country on the Triple M Network. That is 52 stations and on the brand new listener app. We are calling this segment Industry Icons and what a career this man has had. Uh, you might know him if you're in the radio industry. He would have played you a song in his portable speakers no matter where you are over, well, so many years of experience. We're talking head of promotion at EMI, labels, management and nearly celebrating 50 years chaos management. He's played a role in some Australian classics. Aussie Crawl moving pictures. Johnny Farnham. What about a bit of Spy vs. Spy? And uh, Johnny Butler too. I welcome the one and only Mr. Russ Thomas. Triple Hi. M's homegrown. How are you, mate? Hey, Matt. How you doing, buddy? It's good to have you here, mate. An industry icon, I think, is uh, it's, well, nearly 50 years of chaos management. Yep. 48 years this year. It's coming and closing in. Tell me, mate. Does it feel like it's yesterday or a lifetime ago since you started? Music and musicians keep you young. I like that. Yeah. Talk to me. Uh, when did you first get into the industry? When did it all begin for you? It started in 75. I knew someone I was working with who was the the wife of Kevin Ritchie, who was duet promotions, who was an excellent EMI person himself. And yeah. I'd been into soul music at the time, Al Green, you know, uh, Al Wilson, all sorts of stuff. And, and uh, they had a job going at Motown. And I went and applied for it and ended up getting it. Where'd the, you grow up? In Sydney. Yeah. So I got the job as the Motown label manager and, you know, it was fun. Would have been a fun gig looking after a music that you're really passionate about. And first job too. I mean, the, my big thing was we had Stevie Wonder who hadn't had an album for a couple of years and he had songs in the key of life. And I came up with this idea that we should do a double-decker bus going around Sydney because at that time there was like 65, 65% of soul music was all in Sydney. Nice. From the sailors and the yeah. discos and all that. So we managed to get this bus. I went into Brian Harris, who was the marketing manager, and he went, no, nah, we're not doing it. Because I managed to get the DMR to approve the album yeah. to be played in the bus on an auto-reverse cassette <laughs> yeah. and had to go to the DMR and say, hey, guys, we've got this problem with this bus. We've got this sound system going in it, but it's got a volume control set. So I'm afraid one of you is going to have to turn it on in the morning. The other one's going to have to turn it at night. They went, we can do that. Yeah. So anyway, I went to Brian Harris and he went, no, nah, we're not doing it. So my lip was quivering. I walked in next door to Stephen Shrimpton, who went on to manage Paul McCartney years later and said, this is what's going on. This is what we've got. He said, tell Harris we're doing it. So I went in and we did it. The bus was supposed to go for 12 weeks, ended up running for 20. No way. Flash's TV show went on the bus. It got in cash. We're getting a photo for Cashbox and all the staff were in Crow's Nest in Sydney getting a photo with the bus and Brian Harris turned up and they went, you? Right up the bat. <laughs> Right up the back. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, it turns out, you know, we, I was with Ronnie Sparks and he talked to Stevie Wonder and tried on the phone and tried to explain to him what it was. And we had to do 37,000 double albums when his other albums only sold 20 to justify the expense. Wow. We sold 65,000. Whoa. Right. Motown's share in EMI went from 2% to 8%. No way. 
And I, when we got the gold album, I actually went to the Braille Society and had them write a, a letter oh. in Braille for Stevie. And then when we do the albums where you have the map of Australia and all that, leave the glass off. So when we finally spoke to him, he's like, I could even feel the map of Tasmania. This is, that was very cool. That's a buzz. And, and what, where'd you go to from there? Like, uh, how long were you at Motown for? I was that, and I did Rocket too, which was Elton's label when he had Blue Moves and a few other. And then I went to Melbourne as PR in 77, where in se- late 70s, my secretary, Robin, told me about this young band from the Moynihan Peninsula. Yeah. Australian Crawl. Nice. So I went to see them at um, at Macy's in South Yarra, which was a famous venue then on a Sunday afternoon. And John Wayne had just died, so they dedicated Gunslinger off Mink DeVille's, Mink DeVille's Cabretta album, which is a great album, and played that for him. So I ended up taking that to a, the head of EMI signed them and with Beautiful People was the, fir- was the first single. No way. And apart from everyone having trouble understanding what James <laughs> was saying, which is, you know, a myth really, yeah. I wanted to get him on Countdown and we couldn't really do it because on the song it says I've got a Kerouac condition and a cocaine cough. So I said to James, come on, we're going into AAV. So we went into AAV and James recorded, we have a Kerouac condition and a Jitain cough. So the band <laughs> then went on Countdown, the song went top 40 and... Yeah, that was that. I remember they were doing some big shows around that time, weren't they? I mean, what what was it like kind of watching them play and perform live at at the time? Because, you know, it sounded like such an exciting business back then. Well, it was interesting. You know, James had the broken wrist from Brad Road Indisposed and, you know, got hit by a car and all that. But the the big thing was the boys light up. The boys light up, David Briggs, of course, Little River Band's guitarist at the time, produced it. But, you know, the first single was always going to be the boys light up. So I went into Countdown and said, hey, guys, we've got this song. We played it. They went, oh, that's really good. And I went, you know, Hummer's blowjobs what yeah it's a blowjob oh we can't play that okay see ya i went back into wheatley's office and said i've had a great day wheat what have you done i said i just got the crawl band on countdown <laughs> said you effing what i went mate these guys are like potential olympic swimmers they're so clean they need to be dirtied up you watch anyway the album sold a quarter for me oh my god man what a story. And I mean, like, it would have been really exciting too. Like, Australian Crawl, that would just come up. Glenn Wheatley was, like, young and upcoming too. Like, all these industry heavyweights now were all just starting at the same time. What was it like kind of mingling with everyone when they're all coming up? Well, you know, the the thing with the Crawl, you just watch them explode from there. I mean, you know, we sold a quarter of a million copies. They were selling out everything. And Wheatley's office had a finance guy, you know, and Ian Smith at the time, who's now dead, God rest his soul. He was the band's on-the-road manager. So he would give the band money for whatever they wanted, right? And on yeah. the, on the thing, he'd go, okay. And the, the finance guy comes in and, what's this Coke and what's this speed? And he went, Smithy went, you're the finance guy, you work it out. <laughs> <laughs> and so what was it like at that time for you professionally? Like you're having a lot of success with all these different artists. When did kind of the idea to start your own like chaos? Straight after that, you know, the crawl and beautiful people was John Farnham. Now Wheatley, when I started with Wheatley in 1980, I left EMI and we had, you know, John was there and the crawl was managed there. I took the crawl to them to manage. Um, John had all these gigs from the old days, which was a thousand dollar gig with two airfares and pick up the local band to do his cabaret set. So I was a tour manager, you know, rolling joints in the back of the car, who cares, you know. And we'd go to these venues like Shell Harbour Workers or wherever and and, and we, you know, John would have to rehearse the three-fingered piano player and the, the four-fingered <laughs> guitar player and do this one-hour show, you know. Which would, But John and I would sit in a hotel room. This was our thing. We'd stand about 10 foot apart with a box of matches and look each other in the eye and just try and catch the matches without watching them. This was our thing to, <laughs> yeah. to, to kill the time on the road. Yeah, right. But later that year, of course, John, we did the album with Uncovered with with Graham Go- seven Graham Goebel songs, which he produced, and he did that cover version of Help. 
Mm. So the end of 1980 was the command performance. And I was with John when he did it in front of the Queen and all that, which was special. I've actually wow. got a photo of my Insta and me, John and Jill. I've got a red wine and cigarette in my hand. <laughs> Joe and Jackie Weaver, this is 43 years ago, and her guy then was Phil Davis, who was the EP of Willisie. Whoa. So, yeah, that was an interesting time. That's... I saw John quite a few times after that, and we always laughed about it, you know. Yeah. And then what was next after your career after that? Well, then we had, you know, Wheatley also had moving pictures. Mm. And, you know, Rick Sutton became a very good friend of mine and still is. And Wheatley wanted to go out with What About Me straight away. And I went, mate, the song's a hit, but we've we, we, we got to establish the yeah, band yeah, yeah. first. You can't go out with a big ballad. We've got nowhere to go. So we made him go out with Busting Loose first, which mm -hmm. was, love Charles Fisher, but it was a terrible drum sound. You should know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hated it. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. the song got played everywhere and it built that. So when we came out with What About Me, the moving pictures ah, version, not right. Shannon, no. no we uh, when that. we came out with that, of course, it went number one. And Charles Fisher said, if it goes number one, what do you want? I said, I want a case of Jack Daniels. <laughs> so I gave five of them to the PR guys who worked for me and I took the other seven. <laughs> Charles and I still talk about that to this day. But anyway, the song was a monster six weeks. And then they signed to Al Khoury's network label in America. And the song was boarding at number 33. And it was done, it was through Warner Brothers, that the label. And then they fired all their promo stuff. And the song just fell over. Network it was, it was the label, Al Khoury's label. And he used to work for RSO for Robert Stigwood. And then... A couple of years later, it went again and got up to number three. Oh, did it really? Yeah. I was going to say, there's so much chance in I the mean, music Gary industry, Frost isn't it? must be laughing, even with the terrible Shannon Noll version. <laughs> <laughs> so what was the industry like at that time for you? Like, you know, no, five, we, six we, nights we, a week? The, the 80s, creatives ran it, not accountants, right? If you had a good idea and someone thought it was a good idea, you thought you could do the numbers and it was going to justify the expense, I mean, that's what you did. The interesting case, I then married, I went on my honeymoon, I stayed at Rod Smallwood's house with my... In, in and out of America, in Rod manages Iron Maiden. I'm godfather of his daughter. We're best friends. No way. And then Peter Dawkins, unbeknownst to me, was going around the country saying that I was fired when I got back. So first day back from the job, from my honeymoon, he goes, oh, they sit me down in my office with him and Nick Hampton. And I said, don't you open your mouth, you know, fuck all. Yeah. <laughs> and I said to Dawkins, well, Judas, you can have your car and your 30 pieces of silver tomorrow. I'm going to go and get a taxi license. And first thing you know, wow. the Australian Crawl came on board. Uh, Mondo Rock came on board. And, you know, I was working doing a couple of nights a week in a cab and that was the start of it, 85. Wow, really? So yeah. it was literally back to the bones. And so yeah. explain like your week kind of schedule back then, like how, how that looked kind of day to day. You just, same as I was doing now, you know, you just go to radio, see people, do all that. And, you know, they had to live with the drama of firing me first day back from my honeymoon. You know, yeah. I remember they, they taxed me like all this money. They even took my Siebel Townhouse weekend honeymoon before we flew to America out of my payment. And I rang up the personal manager who looked a bit like Elmer Fudd. His name was Ernie Rose and I, Ernie someone anyway. I rang him up and I said, mate, I'm having a problem with the, money, with the money you've taken out of me. He said, do you mind if you call me back in a minute, Russell? I'm just being fired. <laughs> Across the board. Very funny. But then later that year, I had enough points. We went back to America again. And then yeah. we ran into, we met Gary Morris and his wife, Amanda in America. We got friendly and hung out and Gary, of course, had the spies and he had a midnight oil, of yeah. course. And we got back, I went and saw him in his office. He went, you know what, you should plug Spy vs. Spies album for me, Harry's Reasons. So I went, oh yeah, he went, here. He threw me the keys to a 64 Dodge. He said, this is yours. Just give me receipts and you don't get any money. You got the car. No way. So I put dodgy plates on it. It was a 64 classic Dodge and drove that for about five or six years. <laughs> and then I ended up managing the spies. 
Yeah. And the funny thing was they lived in Glebe and 301 was two or three k's away in Castle Ray Street. Of course. 301 was three grand a day in the studio then. It became cheaper for us to fly to London and do six weeks at the Manor in Oxford. No way. Than it was, and mix it, it was to go to three k's up the road. So no we did that. No way. That's a We were in the Manor for six weeks. So my wife and I also had the head of internationals um, pad in Marble Arch where we could stay weekends and- it was all going great. Craig Leon was the producer who'd done Talking Heads and done Blondie and all that. He lived down the road. He wouldn't work weekends. So here we are in this place. There was three spies, me and my wife and my daughter, who was two at the time. Whoa. We had eight staff. No way. Yeah. Really? And you could make a phone call and the driver would turn up with whatever you wanted at the door and you'd pay some money. And we would sit out every night drinking Holston pills while the wasps tried to get into the, <laughs> get into the beer. <laughs> what but a story, it ended man. badly because in the last week we were there, when we started the mixing, Branson in the, man, a beautiful, you know, hottest summer in a hundred years, big swimming pools, just beautiful place. It had two Irish wolfhounds, both neutered, and they got into a fight and Craig made the mistake of trying to break them up and Willie ravaged his leg like a shark. There was a 50 cent hole on the inside of his calf and a 20 cent on the other side. So oh. we went to the John Radcliffe Hospital and they said it's the worst dog bite we've seen. And Craig had to have his leg elevated and all that. So we, you know, was that, and we tried to, he couldn't be at the mix of the album. And it was done at the townhouse. Oh. And well, it was getting mixed to the townhouse. And I said, oh, come on, we'll get the, we'll get the albums and we'll split. Yeah, you know, yeah. I'll get the master and get the hell out of here because we're going to sue them. Right? So yeah. I paid this Simpkins lawyer a thousand pound to start the process. The next day, a kid had his face ripped off by a Rottweiler and got 600 quid. I went, forget it. Don't worry oh. about it. Let's cancel it. If it was America, it would have been six, six million. Oh. But the UK have no, you know, no liability payouts that are worthy of the, wow. of, of the, what happened. Oh my God. But yeah. So you know, that was trash the planet and we had hard times and, you know, so that yeah. was, that was the spy story, but yeah, wow, the, man. The, the dodge, the manor. Yeah, it was fun. And then when we signed the deal with Warners, the, well, it was a three year deal. It was a license deal for those that don't know you own the masters and then mm. you give it to them for seven or 10 years or whatever. And you, they revert and the advance is recuperable, but not recoverable. When we just signed the deal, the finance guy went, oh, we'll probably never pull it out of the drawer. And I turned the band and said, I wish he hadn't said that. <laughs> sure enough, album two was going to be late. Yeah, yeah, went, yeah. A couple of weeks, they went, oh, you're in breach. And then the band broke up. Really? Yeah, that was that. You know, the only thing wrong with bands, mate, is they're full of musicians. Exactly, mate. You've got to look out for them. <laughs> I did that in a class at Wollongong one day when I was teaching and three kids laughed. I said, you three have a chance. The rest of you might as well go home. <laughs> what, um, I, I mean, it's, it's weird, isn't it? Like you look back on the way that, uh, you know, in the glory days of music I, I find and, you know, like you said, you're, very, you're, you're a very personable person. Like everybody knows you. You've got so much energy. And the way you approach songs and getting people to listen to songs, I feel like that method really isn't around anymore. That's why I feel like you're a dime a dozen. Like people will email a song and be like, oh, I hope they've seen it. And no follow-up, no phone call. Talk to me like what advice do you have for people in the industry now who are looking to just kind of put their foot through the door and, and, you know. Find your way to get in the door. Do not send an email when they don't know you. It's spam. Mm. The days of um, music directors having assistance are over. They're getting... They're multitasking their job. They've got things to do. They're probably getting more emails a day in their inbox about their job than they are getting stuff from you or yeah. whoever. Yeah. I've had young guys working for me and I said, did you get him on the phone? No, I sent him an email. I went, 
It's not an, that's not how you do it. Yeah. I mean, I, you got to whites of their eyes, have a meeting, do whatever it takes. Mate, can I meet you for a coffee? Do a non-call. Put your face to the name. I do that with artists, which leads to, you know, I guess John Butler was the start of all that. In the late 90s, Sebastian Chase and MGM said, mate, we're going to start a new way. In the 90s, if you had a song and you weren't with a major, you couldn't get played on the radio because you couldn't buy it in store. People that don't know, this is when they actually had CDs in a record store. Yeah, yeah. So what Sab said is, I'm going to get you to plug the records. I'm going to be a distributor who takes 25%. The artist will take 75%. They will create their own marketing division of themselves. Nice. We did that with a band out of Perth for Crawl Space and had limited success. And then John Butler came along with Phil Stevens and signed to Sab. And Sab said, oh, I'm going to pay you. So he paid me some $3,000, I think it was, to take the record to radio. No bite. This was an, the eight minutes version of Better Man, cut in half. Yeah. John had already, you know, done okay. He was getting people at shows. Didn't matter. Six months later, they, he won an aria for Best Independent Artist. I went again. Sab said, go again. Went again, didn't happen. So why weren't they doing it? Purely because they were independent yeah. and there was just, yeah. that's how that's how much of a no- monopoly major labels yeah. had on radio totally. at that time. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then, then it, that was nine months. Then there was Big Day Out and John, John's album, Three, had gone platinum. Yeah, I remember. By that time and still no play. So Sab said, go a third time. And I remember I went into Triple, J, Triple M, who was our main target, of course, and said, you guys are effed. He goes, what do you mean? I said, you're not playing Coldplay Yellow, which is the best song around at the moment. And until you play that, you've got to get to me, which yeah. is the second best song around at the moment. So sure enough, Coldplay had come and they played and they added. And I went, hello, I'm here. Yeah. So Ronnie Stanton was one of the first at Nova in Melbourne. And then it all happened and Triple M added it. And then that song that took a year to get played got played for a year. Yeah. Yeah. And that was the dam buster for independent music. From that point on, more independent music started flowing through. Because, I mean, independent music is, it's almost, there's more independent music now than there is, There was you know. a thing in Music Business Week in the UK the other week where 98, there was 98.1, 98,000 songs released a day, <laughs> which is now 120,000 songs a day. And of that 98,000, have a guess how much of it was owned by the majors? Oh, have a stab. I would say three or four. 4.1%. Yeah. That's all. Yeah. And that was them and their affiliated labels. Yeah. So. But John was one of those guys who, you know, we did the thing what we do, I do all the time with artists now. We go in and do an acoustic. And John would go in with his 12 string, actually 11 string. Thought it sounded better on 11, which I didn't know until one of my interns from Boston Uni went, How come you only play 11 strings? I went, What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think but, that's, yeah, I think but that's, that's where, that's where it broke from John face to face, such a nice guy he is, and killer shows, and, you know, Ocean's. The, the acoustic of Ocean's probably had 30, 40 million views now. That's know? probably one of the greatest guitar performances I think I've ever seen. Watching it with you in Sydney. Yeah. I, I, I think there were people the crying. Theater. Yeah, there yeah. were people crying watching that performance. Yeah. I think like, yeah, I think the way you kind of work is something that I think a lot of people, not only in music, could really take on because I, you know, there is this kind of nervousness about approaching people now where everything's online. Well, you know, the thing too now, I mean, you can get now, which I've had artists recently, you can now buy a JBL speaker, either in a box form or in a, like a ghetto blaster Mm. with Bluetooth microphone, right? So all my artists are getting them now and we can go in now. There's only one place, Hot Tomato Boardroom in the Gold Coast where the acoustics are so good you could record a vote, but everywhere else there, cavernous dry yeah yeah yeah. but you can go in with this thing on battery and with a bluetooth mic yeah. you don't need to have a musician playing an acoustic guitar you can have the band track so that's my thing what is it that keeps you so passionate about music 
Music. You never know what the next day is going to bring. I mean, I've got this young hip-hop artist that's coming out tomorrow called Cahooks who's a, who does drill hip-hop and I never thought I'd like it, but it's real interesting. I was out at you know, Triple R here this morning and they loved it. You know, there's, so there's always something new. But, you know, one of the classic stories which will pay homage to someone, a few years ago we were at a Muse Expo in Los Angeles, which I've been to a lot of, and Fitzy's been to a lot there, even though he's not here anymore. And all the A&R guys get up and go, you know, that's a hip-hop, country-pop crossover, and that's an urban R&B thing, and they're, they're, it's called Play Your Hits, and the people play their songs, and all these Atlantic, Atco, Universal, Republic, you know, they're all giving their two cents worth. And Seymour Stein... God love him's on the panel. And they're all talking about genres and all that. And Seymour gets up and goes, there's only two genres, good and bad. Yeah. And the whole room just jumped up and applauded. Yeah, and, you know, absolutely. Yeah. That's the business. And I, feel- I, I, I hear a song, I think it's good. I can help. I'll find somewhere. If it's bad, I'm out. Because I feel like there are a lot of people in the music industry for the wrong reasons. And I feel like the ones that are truly passionate about music, they're the ones well, you know, there's other people like me that are around there. Daryl Bailey's great. John Zuko knows what he's doing. Yeah, you know, Michael Matthews down here knows what he's doing. All these guys have been through, you know, the times when it was good. Mm. So they can appreciate how to, you know, work the right song. What's been the hardest thing you've had to deal with professionally in your journey? Is it the way kind of music's changed? It's gone from CD, vinyls to Spotify. What's been the most challenging thing you've had to deal with? Well, you know, probably the, the, the fact that live music's now stronger than ever and audience has been big build up. I mean, Lime Cordial just played to a full house at O2 in yeah, London with two and a half thousand people when seven years ago we were struggling to fill the, the lair at, in, in the metro. Yeah. So that's enabled that. Okay, it's probably a downside about the amount of money you make from streaming, 0.004%. Yeah. But in the old days, you sold an album for three or four months, you got a few back, and you wouldn't have another in- source of income for a year. Yeah. Every stream is incremental. You're not, they're not coming back. They're building. Mm. There's people that are making 20000 a month without being played on the radio just from getting on playlists. There's one band that MGM had who made so much money. The most money they made was on their first track, which was 30 Seconds of Dead Air, because people would wait for it. Wait for the song for the music to start, and that class of butterfly jumped oh, on that. Oh, I bet, man. <laughs> they, they were getting away with a lot of money. What is there one Australian artist or you know artist you wish you'd worked with over your career that you always you you might have come close to? But uh... oh, the Oils, undoubtedly. You know, I've worked with them in various capacities, but not plugging them at radio. I've never had, but yeah. You know, Pete and Rob and all that, and Jim, I mean, they're legends. Yeah. I saw their two shows at the Domain a couple of years ago. Was, they're blistering. Yeah. I remember we were at, um, in a new music seminar in New York, I think it was 88 or 89, and the Oils were playing. Shriekback were on first, and they had a bald singer, and Pete's come on stage and gone, well, I suppose you had enough of Chrome Dome tonight. <laughs> and it's really weird because we'd been at Jan and Trevor Smith's wedding, and Jan was talking about how she felt quite faint at, at the wedding. It was so hot and all that. And Wayne Young, who, who had done Fern Gully, yeah. that movie, was there. And he helped Robin to sit down or whatever. And Robin's telling this story to Amanda. And, and I've walked over and gone, hey, Robin, you're in New York. Hey, Robin, remember Wayne Young? And they both looked at each other. Doo, 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 doo. <laughs> I want to play. I want to play a quick game with you. This is called First Favorite and Forgettable. Okay. Do you remember your first song you ever pitched to radio? 
your favorite song you ever pitched to radio and the most forgettable song you pitched to radio. One that you kind of look back on and go, oh, I can't believe I tried. The that. first was a girl called Yvonne Fair, was on Motown. She had a song called It Should Have Been Me. And I got, a, got her a gold record for that. Mm. And I went back to give it to her backstage and I said, when's your birthday? She said, October. I said, same as I. She said, when is it? 21st. I went, so was I. I said, what year? I said, 1952. I said, so was I. My first ever <laughs> no artist way. I broke was born on the same day as me. <laughs> That's awesome, man. <laughs> My favorite? Favorite song you've ever pitched or, yeah, favorite song you pitched to radio? Probably the one that took was the hardest and the most meaningful was Total Control by the Motels. Martha is one of my daughter's godmothers. It took me six months to get played and I just loved it. What's the secret to getting a song on radio? Is Don't give up. Can't give up. If you believe, you've got to believe in yeah. every, every level. Awesome. Is there um, a forgettable moment that you have along your career, one that you look back on? It doesn't need to be pitching radio. It could be just any moment in your career that you look back on and just like, oh, God, I wish that didn't happen. I probably wished I'd met Mick Jagger. I was a big fan of the Stones, still am. Mm. Um, I remember sending Keith Williams to interview him at the George Sank in Paris and he had a good time and Mick's very intellectual, so probably not meeting him. Yeah, still but, time. You know, I've done two tours with David Bowie. I did the whole series Moonlight with him and then in 87 I worked for him. Wow, what, what was that like? Well, it was weird because I got fired. I did the series Moonlight and David was amazing. He would have, before the show, we'd have the hospitality room, which we called the hostility room. Basically, it was key radio, key, key, key radio, key retail, and no press. They sold papers. So David would come in five minutes before I went on stage, and I'd have to remember maybe 30 people's names in the room and introduce him. Nice. And this guy, Dennis O'Regan, took photos of all these. Never seen one. <laughs> yeah. He took all these photos, and people would then go and sit down and go, I just met David Bowie. And he could do whatever he likes yeah, after the show. Yeah, of but course. Then... When they fired me at EMI, I went, okay. And then Bruce Dunbar rang me up, the manager, and said, oh, look, David thinks you, know, you were the best guy working with him around the country, so on the tour of Glass Spider, we want you to work for us. So they had to send a telex to EMI going, hey, Russell, just to let you know, Russell Thomas is now working for David on this tour. Anything you want from him, you must go through him. Nice. And that was, uh, <laughs> revenge, very Oscar Wilde <laughs> moment. Revenge is best served cold. Absolutely, you know? man. And finish it up with a favourite Australian song and why. It's probably still Reckless. You know, I remember it, it was played to me in AAV one day, The Crawl, and it was on a little spare and it was a very sound thing. And I said, the guys, it's a number one. They went, come on. I went, no, mate, it's a number one. And it was. Why were people doubting it? Because it was slow? It was a bit weird? It was... No, the, the, the band were doubting it. The, oh, it hadn't, this is before it got to anyone. This okay. is just when they just finished it. I just thought it was a... Yeah. It still is a classic. And James still smashes it live. Yeah, absolutely. Russ, thanks so much for coming in and having a chat. Industry icon, it's been a pleasure. Long time in the making. And I can't wait to see you again. And thanks. It's been really fun. My pleasure. Thanks, Matt.